0: When you
1: are
2: pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, (laughs) did you hear about that? (laughs) I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected, and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled.
1: I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy.
2: And when you change your energy, you change your life.
0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders, and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Becky Kennedy. She is a clinical psychologist, sought-after parenting coach, and mom of three. Her new book is called Good Inside, a guide to becoming the parent you want to be. Becky and I talked about what it means to be a conscious parent today. Her approach is to help parents see past a child's behavior and identify what is really going on underneath it. Dr. Becky explains what's at the root of projection and how parents can break free from their own shame and self-doubt and work toward repair, connection, and empathy. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Dr. Becky Kennedy. I've been spending a lot of time reflecting on parenting and the things that I feel like I did well and things that I feel like I didn't do that well and it sort of strikes me that like outside of a long-term intimate relationship with a partner you know the relationship with your kids and your parenting is so confrontational in a way in terms of like your unhealed stuff these weird bad patterns that were ingrained in you when you were little and i i feel like i tried to be a conscious parent. Right. But of course it's hard to see all of your blind spots. I'm just wondering sort of more broadly, like is the milieu around parenting more accountability these days? Like how are people approaching it? I mean, I think
1: what I see is something so hopeful is the shift from you know, what's wrong with my kid? Can you fix my kid? I mean, we all can still get to that place because it's easiest to, huh? Like, I, I'm just aware that there's an interaction happening, right? And yeah, this is triggering for me, right? And so many things with our kids, right? I, I think we all on some level feel like our kids are going to heal us or complete us. And then they they end up just triggering us instead, it's like the the secret, <laughs> like, oh, okay. Okay. But I do think that there are so many parents out there it really is the most hopeful thing for me who really do want to like do that work of looking in first mm-hmm. and really understanding it's not my fault that my kid is struggling in some way, or it's not my fault. My kid is the way they are. It is my responsibility to look at the system. Yeah. And if I'm the leader of the system, then that's where change happens from. And I always say, just like in a company, like, I don't know any, good CEO who's like, I really need to change culture starting with the associates. Like you'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. You change the culture starting with the leadership. Right. And I, and I do think there's a lot of parents who realize when you start to look in, in that way, not only does your kid benefit. And I think this is the best part you benefit like way more just than as a parent, Mm -hmm. just as an adult person in the world.
0: Yeah. Do you think there's sometimes a reticence to approach it that way? Because we, so many of us, especially in my generation, like we had painful things in our childhoods, right? So in a way we have to traverse back through really difficult material in order to be honest with ourselves.
1: I think that's one of the reasons. Yeah. Most of us, when we were really, really struggling in some way, we acted out or we were like in a really painful time. I think most of us in our own childhoods, like we felt like our parents looked at us, like we were kind of Essentially, that our behavior was our identity. Mm -hmm. That, like, when we were acting out, when we were lying, when we were stealing money, when we were hitting, when we were whining, like, oh, my child just is that annoying whine. My child is that kid who stole money from me. And so we've equated less than ideal behavior with being like a bad person. And I feel like at the end of the day, self reflection is impossible if you feel like a bad person. Like it literally is, it's too shameful. It's too overwhelming to look at an event. If you believe that that event or that experience kind of defined you Mm -hmm. as an unlovable, unworthy human being. And so if you think about the moments that really trigger us with our kids, and usually they end up yelling or something like that. And it does require say like, Oh, what am I seeing in my kid? Probably that I had to shut down on myself. What is really coming up for me? Or how did I get to that point? Why is it so hard for me to speak up for my needs earlier? Some combination of those things then we have to be able to say, okay, I'm a good parent who yelled. Like I'm a good person, even though I'm struggling in order to do that work. And as long as we're still in that mode of what kind of parent does this? Like I'm, I'm fucking up my kids forever, yeah. right? It actually makes self-reflection impossible because all of our energy
0: goes into victimhood.
1: Yeah. And just into, we can't even face something that brings on those like truly like annihilating <laughs> like <laughs> existential yeah. threat feelings.
0: Yeah. You say something in the book, like that, if we could, as parents reframe that acting out behavior, however bad it is as I need something, as opposed to I'm a bad person, I've done something wrong. Like, like, for example, you said stealing money, lying or being promiscuous or like things that, you know, we've decided in our paradigm, right. Are like really bad and triggering for us. Like, what are those things that they're yearning you to do? Great.
1: So first of all, I want to say like that, that we often have this binary. This is what I would hear in my practice over and over. So let's say it was my 14 year old is like stealing money from me. Right. And they're staying out late and they never listen. Right. They've become this bad kid. Right. right. Like, I think as soon as we say, okay, maybe just punishing your kid, isn't the best strategy. Mm-hmm. People move to like the other extreme. They're like, Oh, so it's okay. And I'm always like, like, I refuse to think that there's only those two buckets. Like, it's not either okay. And it's not like in my own kids who aren't yet teenagers, I would never say like, my son is stealing. And so he's like letting out his feelings. I'm so proud of him. Like, <laughs> it, like that would, of course not, right? But I think those behaviors, especially, I find especially interesting to think about like kind of things we look at with defiance. Like my kids stole from me. I told my kid they had to be home at 11 and they literally came in at 1131 just because to like, give me the finger. Mm-hmm. I think those things can be reframed often as, yeah, what is really going on for my kid underneath and what's going on in our relationship? So let's take the stealing example. I think the first question I like to ask, even though I can, can't always ask it with my own kids, is what is my most generous interpretation of this behavior? <laughs> like we all come up with the least generous interpretation really quickly. It's like, oh, my kid's an asshole. Okay. Right. I'm like, okay, that's the least generous. What's the most generous? And I think I always ask myself, or I try to, well, what would make me steal money? from my parents. What would make me, let's say it was like steal money from my partner. Right. Mm. Well, I probably really wanted something and I both probably just couldn't manage how strong that want was. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's always a relational element. Like I probably didn't feel like my parents acknowledged how strong that want was. Like if I was like, I need money to go to, I don't know, this concert with my friends, like I really want to go. And they were like, that's ridiculous. It's so late. Like we would never let you go to that. Like, I don't care what other parents do, but you can't do that. Okay. Not only do I still want it, but I also feel like I'm completely alone. Mm. Aloneness is always the enemy. I'm alone with that urge. I'm alone with that feeling. Right. Nobody understands it. That's going to make me need to act out more. The irony is then I get punished for it. Well, guess what? I feel even more alone. I'm just going to only hold on to that even more. I need to act out more. Right. But if my parents had even said to me, look, I'm not going to let you go to that concert. Here's the thing. Being the only kid in your friendship group Who's not going to the concert, like that must really suck, like big time, so much that, like, I could even understand that you might want to go to extreme measures. Like, what is it about the concert that you're really going to miss? Like, I'm really not going to let you go. We can talk about more. And I wonder if there's like anything about it that we could emulate. Like, if it's being with your friends late, could we think about that another way? I don't know. I'm making this up. Right. Right. But I promise you, that kid is less likely to steal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. That kid is less likely to steal, because even they've if been... I hold my boundary.
0: Right. Because they, because you're speaking to them more on equal terms because you're not.
1: I think because you're like, you're seeing that. Right. As, like, you're a listening. Real person. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think if we think about this in our partnerships, which I always come back to, because I think it, it brings it home for us. Like if my husband was like, I'm cooking dinner for you tonight, I'm going to make us a nice dinner. And like, you usually do, I don't know, go take s- cereal or chocolate before dinner. Can you just not do that? And like, let's say I like really wanted cereal and I went to get it. Like, I don't think anyone would be like, you don't respect your husband. That's what this is about. They'd be like, oh, you have like a hard time controlling your urges. But if he had said to me, look, I get it. Like cereal is so delicious. And like, you're probably really going to want it. And I understand that. And actually, if you really want it, I would understand that. Maybe just come to me and talk about it in that moment. Mm -hmm. He's normalizing my urge. He's not making me feel like I'm a bad person for having that urge. I'm going to be less likely to act out on it because I get actually that help regulating it. And I think if we all think about these things our kids can do at any age, right? Maybe it's stealing money. Maybe it's staying out late. Just leading with like, I'm going to believe that my kids urge or desire comes from a real place. And I'm going to lead with that first. And again, that doesn't mean I have to say yes, what we decide and what we validate are two completely different things. And the more you validate, especially for a a teenager whose identity is all about trying to feel real in that moment, the less likely they actually have to act out.
0: But how how much do you really energetically have to go into the conversation Agnostic, like, I don't know. I find like if I'm like they're not going to the concert, no matter what they say, and I sit down to have the conversation, I'm not sure that it's energetically resolved in the same way. Well, I think that's a great point. So, look,
1: there are certain things that maybe as a parent, you're like, I'm not letting my kid do something, it's like ridiculously dangerous, right? But yeah, I think you're talking about like really leading with like curiosity, right? I think that's like the single most important thing. And when we assume that our kids at any age, I even think this is true at like six months, If we assume that our kid is a real person with real feelings. And you know, there's a validity to their internal experience. Then it's easier to lead mm-hmm. with curiosity. Yeah. Like there's a reason my kid is asking this mm-hmm. or is struggling in this way. And if I leave it that, yeah, I'm going to lead with curiosity. And you're right. That is that energy that We feel like that. We feel whether someone's Mm -hmm. coming at us from a place of curiosity or judgment, Yeah. right?
0: So why do we project so hard onto them? And I say this really lovingly, like about my own parents, the stakes felt so high. You know, it was like, there was so much projection around what my behavior, I think, said about them in their mind. Like, why do we do that?
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) I, I I always think about this quote from Andrew Solomon, who wrote this book Far from the Tree. It's like in his prologue, and he just says, "There's no such thing as reproduction." Actually, he's like, as he's
0: reproduction. Yeah,
1: he's like that is a fallacy. He's like we produce the idea of reproduction. If you really think about that, I can yeah. is like the idea.
0: Yes. Oh that, my God! You just gave me chills, right? That it's, we're making a carbon copy of ourselves. No, we're producing a we're, new.
1: And he said, what parenthood really is, is being forever cast into a relationship with a stranger.
0: Oh my God, I literally have chills. Right? Yes. And,
1: but if you think about that, most adults be like, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. Like, I don't want to like forever have a stranger in my house who I'm supposed to love and get to know. That's a really tall order. But the word, it sets us up from the start for projection.
0: God, that's so true.
1: Right. And so the idea instead, if you really think about it, like, I'm going to have a completely unique human. And I always think I have three kids, right? Like, each of my kids needs me to lead with a different part of myself. Mm. They essentially need a different parent from me. That's hard work. Like they, they not the same thing lands on them equally. That is so hard. I think there's deep existential reasons we project. It's like our prior fear, our own mortality that's going to reproduce and live forever. And really the idea that I can love someone and see them as separate from me is is a very complicated psychological construct versus this is a version of me. So everything they do reflects back on me. Now I'm actually, I'm parenting from control honestly, for my own right. self-worth. And this person like is kind of like an actor in my play. They're an object. They're not really their own subject.
0: Right. So cultivating that, essentially that separation between you and your kid yes, is really important. Like respecting who they actually are.
1: Huge. And like, that's easier said than done. Right. It has a lot to do with like you said, like, what is our own history with separating? Like, what is it like for us in general to relate to someone and be curious about them? Yeah. Someone who's very different from us, right? Like, again, it's like, can I be curious to learn more as opposed to, can I be controlling to make them more like me? Yeah. Right. I think one of like the biggest gifts parents can give kids is that idea of like, I see you and I love you and you're so different from me. Like, I really do try to mm. say as often as possible, especially to my daughter, like little things, like how cool. You saw me eating yogurt for breakfast and you're having a bagel. Like you knew you want a bagel. Like you knew you didn't want the same thing as me. That's like really cool that you can yeah. know yourself. Right. And yeah. so often kids get a lot of the opposite messages, right. Yeah. This like likeness as closeness.
0: Yes. And that there's an inherent disappointment for the parent in you not being like the parent. Right.
1: Yeah. Kids learn. Right. So if sameness and mirroring your parent mm. becomes the thing, that gives you closeness and praise and hugs and patience, right? right? Than what kids really learn in their earliest years and for their earliest wiring is I need to look out mm. at the people around me and figure out who they want me to be. Oh. And that actually is adaptive. I think this is actually the plight of like most women. That's like the whole good girl idea, yeah. which being a good girl. I was a good girl growing up. I'm decidedly not anymore thank goodness <laughs> but I feel like that term being a good girl is really just like I have learned to gaze out before gazing in and look for what people want of me often at the expense at the things I want for myself yeah right
0: I mean I was like 40 <laughs> before I started to do that honestly
1: I I think that's like a very common story you mm-hmm. know I mean I I I feel like I had my own journey around that too, right? For mm-hmm. sure. And it wasn't until adulthood that I was like, oh, there's there's information inside me. But kids are wired early on for survival. Survival depends on closeness with their parents. It's not like a nice to have. It literally is what gives you food, shelter, and water is right. like maintaining close attachment. So you have to pay very, very, very close attention when you're young.
0: To what's pleasing them.
1: Yeah, to like what parts of me bring closeness mm. and what parts of me bring either scent to my room or punishment, or just that like dark eyes that we all give our kids sometimes. That's like, okay, nope, I shouldn't be doing any of that part anymore. Mm. And then kids wire accordingly. And then usually it's in adulthood. Like a lot of us is like we, some version of, we go to therapy and realize, wow, there's a lot more to me. And that that all used to feel really dangerous to bring to the surface, but probably the secret to my ongoing health, psychological Mm. health, physical health is actually like restructuring that and probably gaining access to more of our parts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers, and now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to Airbnb.com dot com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What about when we, like, for example, my son is really into music, and it's great. And he, you know, thinks about wanting to do that for a job. And of course I'm supportive of that and everything, but there is also like, well, why do I have to do this? If I want to do music for a job, you know, like, how is this going to help me? So how do we adjudicate the really seeing the uniqueness of our child and supporting them in that, but also right. Like are our expectations bad, like, like, well, everybody else like studies this. So I think you should study it too. You know what I mean? Like, how do we balance that? I don't, I don't think there's probably any one, like no parent has that exactly
1: right. Like what is, what is something that I truly believe in a global sense is going to be helpful to my kid would be helpful to any kid. And what is some version of my own value system just like
0: projecting onto them? Yeah, For me manners, I was really a stickler about manners. And so was my kid's dad, because I feel like it opens doors for you in life and now they have really good manners, but when they were pushing back, you know, if I look at it through that lens of like, wow, I'm really projecting this existing societal paradigm on my kids of like, what's right and wrong. So like, how do you do that?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think number one, if you're a parent who's like asking yourself these questions, like, it's almost like you probably put a check Mark, like I'm probably doing the thing I'm like reflecting. I'm wondering, I'm being curious about my own parenting style. Like that is kind of the best I think asking the questions is more powerful than like getting to that answer. But I do think there's things like, I think we need to own it to our kids. Like, Hey, like part of my job as your parent is to like have structures that like, I really do believe are going to help you later in life. Some of those you're going to like, and you're going to agree with. And, and some of those you won't. Right. And I don't even know if all those are right. I'm doing the best I can. We might look back years from now and be like, I agree. That was really annoying. But what I can tell you is, is whatever, as long as you're in my house, like I'm going to have your best interest in mind. And there are going to be decisions I make that you're not always going to like. This seems to be one of those decisions, you know, and then you can open it up. Of course, tell me more about this, whatever it is. Like, why really don't you want to take that class? I want to learn more. Right. Yeah. And you kind of said this earlier that I think leading with that curiosity, mm-hmm. right. It, it it gets you to like whatever the version of a right place is for mm-hmm. your kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And I do think some of parenting is making decisions. I say this to my kids all the time. Like part of my job is actually making decisions that you don't like. Like right. that's actually like I don't want to do that all the time. If we're in that bucket too much, nobody wins. But there are moments when yeah. that's gonna happen. And I know our relationship's strong enough to get through it.
0: Aren't boundaries in some way also don't doesn't that also signal you're safe as much as I love you and you're pleasing me? Uh,
1: hundred percent. So, and actually in the book, I, I, you know, kind of explain all this, but to me, family jobs is like one of the most fundamental strategies Mm -hmm. I think about when I'm working with a family, whether they have a baby or adult children. And so I think family jobs to me, like a parent's job when your kids are younger is kind of a combination of boundaries, validation, and empathy. And I do think, yeah, boundaries kind of speaks to a kid's question. Like, am I safe? Am I safe? And I think the validation empathy, and I could cry when I think about this answers a kid's question of like, am I real? Like, Mm -hmm. Am I real? Are the things that happen inside me, are they real? And I think we see in a lot of adults, like, I don't think anyone goes to a therapist's office and says like, I don't feel real, but they feel empty. Mm -hmm. They feel really empty and they really second guess themselves. And they, they, they really don't trust their gut or they're like, I don't even know what that means to have a gut instinct, right? Mm-hmm. So when I think about those jobs together, they often interplay, right? So boundaries are often like the decisions we make. So like something on my mind might be like, you can watch two TV shows, man, then you're going to bed, right? Or something like that. And I can set it up as well as possible. Oh, it's going to be hard to end. That's so hard to end TV. I know that that's kind of speaking to that, like right. real feelings. And then the TV time is over. And if my kids protest, I can say some version of, look, two things are true, TV time is over. That's the boundary. Yeah. And you're allowed to be upset about it. In fact, I also am upset when people, you know, tell me to put my phone away, <laughs> whatever it is, right? And those jobs, I think, are so critical because when things feel off in a family, it's almost always that a parent starts doing a kid's job and a kid starts doing a parent's job. Like there's job confusion. Like in- a child
0: will start managing people's feelings in the house. A- exactly.
1: So to me, especially when our kids are younger, their actual job in life, and I think it's really powerful to think about it this way, is to actually feel and experience and express their feelings mm-hmm. because like your kids are older than mine. But when I think about my kids being out of my house, I'm like, I think the greatest gift I can give them is the ability to like sit with the widest range of feelings in life. Like the ability to manage Absolutely. all the things that come their way. Because like we forget, like when our kids are young, you can like do things to quickly make them happy. And when they're frustrated or sad or feel left out. But like I don't know any adult who's like my parents got all my frustration out. I've never felt left out. I've never felt jealous. Like, All the feelings you have as kids, you feel as adults Mm -hmm. and either in adulthood, you're prepared to manage those feelings or you're actually at the same developmental place as like a two-year-old, right? So a kid's job is actually to feel those feelings and be in that feeling tunnel because you can't ever learn to manage feelings that you don't actually have experience feeling. And so if you think about those jobs, they often go back and forth. And then I'll explain where like job confusion can happen. So even in that TV example, I can see my kid about to like have a tantrum. Let's say I have a younger kid, especially it's easy I think for a parent to be like, oh, my kid's going to be upset. What kind of good parent just like doesn't let their kid watch another show? And I love my kid, right? And so I'll say, oh, okay, okay, fine. Like one more show. And in that way, my kid's feelings are now dictating my boundaries. Right. That's job confusion. Right. And actually a kid doesn't feel safe in that way because they feel like all well, the feelings that feel overpowering to me actually overpower my parent. Like my parent just changed their decision because I was upset. Like upset feelings must be so poisonous and so Dangerous. That's so unsafe for a kid to feel, right? Like if you had an employee in your company who was like especially difficult, and it was like I think, and I don't know, some change in policy, and then like your whole company watch you change your decision, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, like like nothing about this feels safe, That's right? right yeah. And then the other thing happens as well that as a parent, there's job confusion where we sometimes feel like I made a really good decision, and so I should kind of like my kid should essentially be saying to me, like, I understand why you're making that decision. Thank you for being such a sturdy leader. Like that's, (laughs) that's not true either. And so I think if we all think about a situation with our kids, that's tricky right now. And we all have them. I think like, if my job is setting the boundaries, but doing it with warmth and empathy and validation. And if my kid's job is actually experiencing their feelings, like, is that happening or are their feelings dictating my decisions or are my decisions feeling like they should be dictating my kids'
0: feelings. That's really profound. And I never really thought about it. And I love the job confusion thing. It's really, really illuminating. And you talk a lot about this idea, right? Of resilience over happiness. And I think it's just absolutely such a good distinction because first of all, I think, In our generation, well, you're younger than me, but we've all overcorrected into this. I just want my kid to be happy, and I want to remove all their obstacles, and I want to be with them all the time. I think a lot of us, you know, felt like, oh, my parents could have been involved more, right? So we we've kind of like pivoted to this, you know, not only kind of helicoptering, but this real sense that our children's heartbreak is ours times a thousand and we want to remove all their pain and we are actually not helping them in the long term and so i wanted to ask you about how you tell your parents to cultivate resilience and how to deal with their own anguish at their children's unhappiness
1: i actually remember i was like sitting with like a group of moms some of my friends and something came up with their kid was like really upset about being left out from a party. And they were like, I'm just going to like throw my own party for like the kids who weren't invited, like nothing wrong. It's a singular decision. Nothing right. in parenting is made from like one decisions patterns. And they're like, come on, we just want our kids to be happy. Right. And I remember I couldn't stop myself. I was like, I don't. And they're like, you want your kid to be unhappy. And I, I was like, again, like that's <laughs> there's more than those options. But I think I've seen in my private practice, the, the irony is like everything about my approach with kids actually comes from the decades of working
0: with adults. Yeah. And will you just briefly talk about how you started with kids and why you changed to the parents?
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, I worked with kids in grad school. I did a lot of play therapy, so valuable, but for me, I actually felt like I enjoyed and like felt more energy activated from the time I'd be with parents. Cause I always thought, okay, I see this kid 45 minutes a week, maybe 90 minutes a week. Like the parents are with the kid. I don't know the math, but like way more than that. <laughs> so if I can help them shift even something small in their environment, like that would have a profound impact. Yeah. Th- that's not to say, I don't think child therapy is also really important. They both obviously really work well together, but I just also like that work like so much. And so I started then working with parents, both. I had a private practice doing like real therapy, like deep you know, once, twice a week, trauma-informed, body-oriented therapy, where I felt like every adult who came to me, no one said this, but essentially came with the same pattern, which was there's ways that I developed early on in my life. And those were always put in place to be adaptive to my early environment. And yet those things are now working more against me than for me. But understandably, our body is hesitant to let go of the things that were put in place to protect us. And so people feel stuck. And so in the course of that work, I, you know, I, I worked with people obviously depending on what they were coming in with in different ways, but there was a lot of like restructuring, rewiring work, right? And then in another appointment that day, I'd be working with parents on um, something with their kid. And I I've always liked to like learn more. So I'm like, I'm gonna get the best education for working with parents. So I went to this like evidence-based parent training program. And then the things I'd hear myself saying with parents, I was like, I can't believe it. There was one day I was like, teaching someone how to do, it was like timeouts and sticker charts. It like, couldn't be more different philosophically than how I was working with adults. Right. And literally in a session one day I was like, I don't believe what I'm telling you. I'm really sorry. <laughs> literally. I was <laughs> oh, like, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to refund you, but I'll do that. And like, I just need to rethink this and rework this. And and I was like, I just like, I just know if, if I was having a really hard time and acting out, my husband was like taking away my TV time and sending me to a room. Like I just know that wouldn't be the way, like, that's definitely not anything that would help. Me. I would just feel worse. And I feel like more shame. I'd act out more. I was like, I actually think that works more against a kid. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, what if I kind of took everything I know about what helps adults and the theories that I draw on to help adults and just kind of like reverse engineered that to parents so you can give that to kids early and wire them that way. I mean, we'll all have kids who go to therapy anyway, me too. But like, <laughs> what if we just made that work a little less for them? you know, later on. And so I really got to work. And then I think what really struck me about all these behavioral approaches, the timeouts, the sticker charts, the ignoring, the praise, all this stuff was what it gives parents is clarity. Mm-hmm. And I really think the worst thing as a parent, because every parent wants to do right by their kid. The worst thing is to feel confused. You're like, I don't know what to do. It's the worst feeling. I feel like as humans, we all pick kind of something that's clear, even over something that's good. Like we just want to know what to do. So I remember thinking like, if I'm going to come up with like a different way of working with parents, I need to give them the concrete strategies and scripts. Like I need to be as clear as this behavioral system because clarity always wins. And what I found also has always been missing from the parenting kind of literature. It's like as a parent, especially if you're a parent who's like reading something or watching a video, it sounds ironic, but it's always about the kid. It's like one more thing that like, I don't really matter. It's just about my kid, my kid, my kid, and I'm just depleted. And like really parenting changes come from feeling more empowered and more equipped and sturdier yourself. And that obviously helps you outside of parenting as well. Mm. So I think that also our approach does is it offers a clear non kind of non-behavioral control approach, but it also gives it like, I feel like it almost helps parents as humans way more than it even helps their kids or it helps them both equally, Mm. right? So it's like we have to rewire in ourselves the thing we want to give to our kids, right? And setting a boundary, you can get any script about how to set a boundary, but if you've learned to take in other people's emotions as your own, if you've learned that closeness and survival comes from pleasing others, Then even if logically you're like, but I don't have to please my four-year-old, they'll love me anyway. Logic never wins. You're not going to be able to set the boundary, even if you have the script, because your body's going to win. Your body's going to be saying danger, 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 danger. And we can't beat the evolutionary Mm. system. And so I think our approach really understands that and gives parents both the tools they personally need and then the scripts and strategies for their kids that they can actually now use because they're foundationally in a different place. And you know what what I hear over and over, that's the most heartening thing, is especially in our like membership kind of community, is where we're always like, what's impacted you about Good Inside? And like we always have to say, like, what about your kids? Didn't you come here for sleep or come here for tantrums? And they're always like, oh sorry, like that's actually totally resolved, <laughs> but it's actually so far down my list. Like I feel like for the first time I asked my husband to take the kids away for a weekend because like I actually needed a weekend to myself and I that. I asked for a raise. I, Mm. you know, really feel sturdy when my kid is anxious at a party and the only one not joining, like I'm no longer acting on them based on my kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, self-consciousness, like I can be sturdy for them. And it's like, I feel like what happens is, and I feel like this with my kids is our parenting wins become actually totally separate from our kids' behavior. And in fact, I think so many parents are like, my win, it was weird. Like my kid was having this massive tantrum, but I knew what to do. And I like carry them to a room and I sat with them there. They're like, that was my win. I felt like I really felt good about what I was doing. And I think when we start to then define our parenting wins separate from our kids' behavior, outcome, everyone benefits.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about one
2: of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Good Weave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com use promo code inner circle to get free rug samples.
0: Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So, what if, you know, we've all had that where our kid is left out or not invited to yes. the party? So, what so does let's... a parenting win look like in that scenario?
1: To me, if everyone pictures their kid like walking around some like garden or like outdoor yard area and there's hundreds of benches, and every bench in that garden is an experience a kid might have. So you're saying, my kid is now on the like, I'm feeling left out bench. Right. To this, That is the garden of life. Like when your kid is 30, guess what is also going to be there? The bench of feeling left out. Like yeah. those benches don't disappear right. when you become adults. And to me, like when our kid is sitting on that bench, we can do one of three things. We see the happy bench, which is also in the garden. And we like try to pull our kid off and be like, just come come over here. So maybe we'll say like, we don't like those girls anyway. Like, you know, or Hey, remember you were the only one who made the soccer team. So like, you know, we're, you're trying to like get them to that bench or we go to their bench and we like, think we have some magic wand and try to convince them that like their bench actually isn't their bench. And actually like, it's not that bad. Right.
0: Or invalidating their feelings, It's
1: invalidating their feelings, which to me is literally like the essence of why adults become so self-doubting, right? Mm -hmm. Is this a really big deal? Do other people know me? better than I know myself. That's, that's right. really sad. Right. Yeah. So there's those two or the third option, which to me is the resilience building option is you literally just sit down on the bench that they're on. You sit on it. and an impractical too. You're like, what does that mean? Like my kid's not on a bench. Like what do you mean? Sit? <laughs> Sitting on it? First of all, there's three lines that I think are like the most powerful lines, especially as your kids get older for when kids are having a hard time. The first one is I'm so glad you're talking to me about this. I don't know. Sophie didn't invite me to the party. I'm the only girl in the class who wasn't invited to be met with. I'm so glad you're talking to me about this and maybe layering on like, this is so important. What you're really doing is you're sending a strong attachment message to your kid. You're saying the part of you that feels left out and vulnerable is literally attachable to me. Mm -hmm. You don't have to hide that part. Like I, I love that part. I can be with that part and kids learn what parts of them they can be in based on what parts, their parents were able to connect to right. and not run away from. Because if, if you think about it, if a kid feels left out and their parents are like, oh, but you made the soccer team or we can have other girls over again, similar to that tantrum example, a kid's like, wow, this feeling feels uncomfortable to me, but like this feeling must actually be so bad. Cause I'm watching my adult parent, like not able to acknowledge this thing that just happened. Like, wow, that is, that is really, really scary mm. to a kid. Right. So sitting down. It's like, I'm so glad you're talking to me about this. This is so important to me. The most self-confidence building statement we can ever say to a kid is I believe you. I could cry thinking about that's like often the only thing kids need to hear. Like, I don't want to go to school today. You know, I'm worried about my test. I believe you. Like it's amazing how many times like people are like, I said that to my kid and then they got dressed and went to school. Like what happened? You know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we just want to be believed. Like, I'm so glad you're talking to me about this. I believe you. And then tell me more. Those three lines are sitting on a kid's bench sometimes literally it's also just like hugging them. You can even ask yourself, like with my kids, hard thing. I think we know, like, is my reaction, like, am am I sitting Mm. or am I pulling them off? Mm. Because if you think about your kid, aloneness, aloneness is the enemy of building emotion regulation. Mm -hmm. Like it's not so much ever at any stage in life a feeling that dysregulates us as much as feeling alone in that feeling. Either we literally feel alone either in adulthood because we feel still in adulthood people are invalidating us or feelings that we have in adulthood have such a history of aloneness encoded in that feeling from our past Mm -hmm. that when that feeling comes up, the aloneness activates right next to it. That's, I actually think that's the experience of anxiety in adulthood. It's that memory of aloneness next to another experience at once. And that's the opposite of resilience because anxiety, at least I know in my body is like, I want to run away from, I'm like trying to run away from my own body. That's right. like what anxiety is. It's like, I'm on the bench and I'm like, get me off this bench. And then I think we worry as parents, like, okay, so I do that. But then uh, is my kid just going to like be a puddle the whole time? Is my kid just going to like spiral and feel mm-hmm. bad for themselves? I, I would just say the parents just try it. Like, yeah. I, I think um, my short answer is no, like, you know. but just, just be curious, right? Yeah. And the experience of being seen and connected to and having parental just presence yeah. presence is like so much more powerful than we think it's just being present with a kid it actually gives them the strength to usually come up with their own ideas yeah. because then if a kid said hey i'm wondering like maybe i could have a couple of friends over that's actually very different than having a parent lead with
0: fix it with solutions and yeah. You know. so you yes. want them in other words you really want them to be able to regulate their own feelings, accept the uncomfortable feelings, and then ideate their way out of it for themselves.
1: Yeah, and sometimes that kid's pace might be different than our pace. Yeah. Like that kid might be sad about yeah. it till the next day. might not want to have a party. And they might need to hear, yeah, like you're allowed to be upset about that. Like I get that you're gonna be upset on Friday when you know your friends are there. And I also know like, we'll we'll get through it. But I'm thinking a lot about this, especially recently, this idea of holding hope. For someone else, mm-hmm. like both validating what's happening for them in the moment, but them also feeling like you could hold hope for some pathway out, right. which is so powerful. Right. But yeah, kids, kids really do then learn to be resilient in that way because then they don't have to use all their energy to like get out of the feeling. Like the, the problem with the focus on happiness is like, it, it, to me, it's like what what it ends up doing over time is it makes a kid more and more fearful of their distress. So as soon as distress comes on. In any way, kids like oh, I'm not supposed to feel that way. Like, where's the happy? Where's the happy? And I think we know in adulthood, like you can't always find the happy. People can find the happy in COVID. Like, you can't find the happy right away when you're fired from mm-hmm. your job. You can't mm-hmm. find the happy, but you can learn to tolerate distress. And when you tolerate it, mm-hmm. the biggest paradox is there's more room for happy. Like, the happiness finds itself mm-hmm. when you learn to tolerate the inevitable distresses that, you know, come our way in life. Let me also just say, cause I hear my husband being like, Becky, you need to let people know that like, you're really working on this. So <laughs> I don't know if it's the same thing as you, but I find, you know, like the things I talk the most about, like everyone should know, I talk the most about them because they're like the things I'm actively working on in therapy. Like it's not because I've like mastered resilience, you know, this is like a work in progress for me too.
0: That's awesome. So you were talking about this idea of like enmeshing with the parents feelings, that job confusion role. And I feel like I see that a lot. And I feel like, you know, I have done that at times with my kids too, where, you know, I feel like, Oh no, are they worrying about my feelings right now? Like I've definitely handled this incorrectly. And I've seen it when the parents feelings are the most dominant thing in the house. Right. And it's like, you, you're acting kind of like a thermostat, right? Like, oh, they're getting hot. Like I need to cool this off. They're getting cold. I need to warm things up. It's sometimes I feel like it leads to either a lot of anxiety or a lack of a true sense of self. So why does that happen? And how can you then encourage a kid to like find really what they're made of. Like, how do you encourage a kid to understand, like, no, these are my values, irrespective of what my parent thinks.
1: Yeah. Big, important questions. Like the word
0: codependence, right. right? Which exists a lot. I see it a lot and I'm sure I have it too, in ways that, you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, we all definitely have parts of that. So, so I think going back to like attachment theory, Right. attachment theory is the idea that like the thing a kid needs to do more than like anything else to survive is form an attachment with their parents right because right. again a parent like if you think about how long the human species we are like dependent before we can survive on our own like I don't know what the age is for other animals but like it's definitely more for humans like there's so many years like I don't know you have older kids at what age could they have survived on their own like
0: I mean, go, talk about eating cereal and chocolate. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I mean, but it's, like, it's way past 10. Like it's just, it's so many years. Yes. So like they're dependent on you also for the years that their early wiring yeah. right, is developing. So it's just like, it's very complicated. So we have this very outsized impact on our kids' identity development and really worldview development because they're so dependent on us in that moment. So their survival depends. It truly depends on these questions of like, what gets me safety and love and security? Oh, all is good in the world. Right. And what gets me rejection and yelling and screaming and chaos, like true threat, like threat, right. We're no longer like running from bears, right. The threats are like attachment threats in a kid's world. And so Kids are just, they're just so smart and and so crafty. Like they figure this out. They notice more in their environment than we do because Mm -hmm. they have to, to survive. Okay, so if a kid learns early on, right? A kid, I don't know, has a tantrum at a birthday party, right? Let's say this at two years old, even something like that. You embarrass me. What is wrong with you? Those are all my friends. Okay. So, what does a kid learn? A kid doesn't learn not to have a tantrum. Like, I don't know what person thinks my two year old is now learning emotion regulation skills while they're alone in their room and they're (laughs) going to be shown. No, no, they don't do that. What they learn is when I have my own desires and wants and big feelings, that is a threat to my survival. I could cry. Like, that's actually a threat. Mm -hmm. Like, look at what just happened. And then, And now we're on to topic, and you talk about too, like what, and I think this relates especially to so many women. Like my desire is dangerous, Mm. desire, right? Wanting things for myself, healing things for myself, and then let's say I don't know. Again, I see that same kid is now older, right? And again, this is not one. This is like a pattern of interactions like this, right? Where the, the parent is kind of boundary violating and like really upset. Oh, this thing happened with your dad. And you know, and then you have the kid who's learned, like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Can I give you a massage? You're such a great mom. I don't know why your friend would leave you out of lunch. And the parent's like, oh, you're the best daughter. You are the best. No one understands me like you. What would I do without you? I love you so much. Let's go shopping. Let's what does a kid learn? Mm. How, Like I am at my best version of myself. I am safest. When I am noticing and taking care of other people's emotional life. And then something again, pattern, pattern, many, many years, really complicated happens where there's almost no differentiation of like, what is someone else's emotion and what is mine? Because they're survival dependent Mm -hmm. on noticing someone's feelings, actually have it vacate their body, come into their own body, and then figure out what to do to heal that person. Right. Right. And again, like, I saw so many women in private practice who are like, what is wrong with me? Because asking a woman, especially if they become a parent, what do you want? What do you want? Say your partner was like, you know what? You have the whole weekend to yourself. What do you want? There's nothing that gives people panic attacks as much as that question. Taking care and over-functioning for a partner who's not doing their job is way easier for people than saying, oh, what? what do I want? What do I like? Right? You know?
0: Yeah. Uh, that's like terrifying. Right?
1: What do I want? And what do I like? Well, <laughs> you go back to early wiring. What I wanted and what I liked was that ice cream cone back at that party when I was two. And, and do you remember what happened to me? Like, oh, you want me to speak up for what I want? No way, Right. you know, but looking out and always noticing now and, and now we're really like going to get into it, but like attraction, I believe in adult years. It's just the activation of our earliest attachment system. It's our body saying, I know how to do this. And so if your earliest attachment system was one of noticing everything around you at the expense of yourself, not only noticing, but taking it in, making it better yourself, giving it back. If that was what worked as a kid, it's cr- your body on a first date will know with yeah. someone.
0: That's why you marry the wrong person. Exactly. A
1: hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting. And your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K dash com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So... What are then the consequences for the child or the ramifications for the child of that dynamic that you just spoke of? And how do you correct that? Well,
1: we all in our earliest years are like forming our identity and forming these ideas around like, what is the way I need to be in the world to be safe, right? That's really like what these feelings are all about. And so you go into the adult world with the idea that like, I am safest when I'm engaged with people who who like take up the space in the room. Like I need to become as small as possible right. as like giving of myself as pouring out of myself as possible. And I think then what happens is and I see this, right. is like, then you have kids. And then you think about this thing, like people talk about like mom rage, right? What's mom rage. I mean, I think the way people experience it is like, I'm in this like calm until I explode pattern. Like, It is just waiting to the point till my kid does that one thing. So you're
0: sublimating all your feelings, and then you have an explosion. Yes, and if
1: you're like, for example, we've been brought up in this like, I take care of everyone. Yeah. At the complete expense of myself. Yeah. I am. (laughs) I think I cry. I think about this like I am empty inside, and other people fill me up. Yeah. Right. Well. Like it's only a matter of time before like your body rages against that. Yeah. Right. Or then develops
0: a symptom or something. Shingles, right. Literally. Right. Exactly. Shingle,
1: exactly. Your body's gonna your body's gonna get its need met.
0: Right. No matter one way or the way other. It, it's going. Right. <laughs> That's happened to me many times. Yeah, I just saw life. this
1: post. Someone said, like, either either I could spend time on my body in health or in sickness. Either way, my body's gonna get its needs met. Chills. right. I yeah. was like, Full I, I, it was amazing. So then probably I'll end up being attracted to someone who allows me to continue mastering this role right. because it's felt safe. Right. And then you have kids and then, you know, you have these moments of yes, explosive anger, maybe to your kids, right. comes out. And then what women too often is after they go into what is wrong with me mode, yeah, as opposed to, okay, that was not okay. Mm. And like, what, what is my body telling me I need? Yeah. Like to me, when you get to that point of being triggered with your kid, the answer isn't what, like, Oh, what was the immediate trigger? The answer is like, that was the ending of a path. What is actually the earliest that path began and that happened on a Friday. Oh, that was interesting. On Monday, I said I was going to work out, but then my partner's like, I'm tired. Can I actually sleep in? Can you do the kids? As soon as I said, yes, it's interesting. That was the first time I was actually setting myself up right. for what happened on mm-hmm. Friday. Right. And there's, I think this chronic feeling of emptiness and, yeah. and a real reliance on other people to give you a sense of psychological safety. And that's, that's just a, it's a very vulnerable, unanchored way of moving about the world. Coupled with this
0: thing that I think we've all somehow imbibed that like, we just have to be able to do it all and be superhuman and that if, if we're not, then it's so damning of, of who we are as women and mothers, right? I
1: mean, yeah, a hundred percent. This is what we're up against too. It's not just individual family psychology. It's the sociology of, of motherhood, of womanhood, that like this idea of like motherhood is martyrdom, motherhood is self-sacrifice. The idea of self-care is selfish, you know? And I think again, what's happened with this good inside community is like, it's become like, So much more than just these like ideas that are helpful with kids. It's like a group of women who are like, "Fuck no,
0: it's incredible. I mean, it's really powerful. And look, it's like, I wish I had known you when I was having little kids, because, you know, I do try to do a lot of the work on myself, but you've sort of reclassified the way that we look at kids and how we interact with them and, and what's possible. And I do want to ask you about repair. Because you talk about it in the book and how absolutely critical it is, right? We are not perfect. We burn out. We lose our temper. We roll our eyes. We say something we wish we hadn't said. And then we walk away thinking, I'm the worst mother in the world. And so we're all going to fuck up. So <laughs> tell me about the importance of repair and what that actually means to the child.
1: Amazing. I was actually wanting to launch into that when you were even talking about your own parenting, because repair can be something I'm repairing for this moment. I yelled at my kid. Right. And when I say I'm repairing for the moment I yelled at my kid, I literally mean me. Like I yelled at my kid early this morning. Like I did that today. Right. So (laughs) those moments or repair can be something that happened 10 years ago, or like a pattern that you want to repair for from years ago. Right. Right. So like, if I had to say to a parent, there's like one strategy to pick, to get good at one, it truly is repair. And if you really think about that, it's a little bit of a complicated communication and one that I think is very relieving, even to me. It's like, well, if I'm going to get really good at repair, that means I'm going to keep like fucking up. So like, oh, okay, maybe I can do that. Cause like, I don't have to like get it right all the time. Right. And those moments of misattunement, Those are really important, actually, for child development, right? I'm not trying to say it's so important that kids get yelled at and called names. Obviously not. But these moments of misattunement that you repair for, like, I don't think either of us want our kids to go into the adult world being like, I'm going to go find a partner who's perfectly attuned to all my needs and always gets it right. Like, good luck, right? right? Like, no way. So let's take a exact moment and then maybe I'll look at a pattern. So I was whatever it was. I was stressed. I had this pattern of not taking care of my needs. Something happened. My kid does something that triggers me and I yell, you are so ungrateful. You're so spoiled. What is wrong with you? Go to your room. Something like that, right? Okay. Now it's, I don't know, five minutes later. So a couple things. First of all, you're a good parent who is having a hard time. Like to me, the idea of kids being good kids who are having a hard time, not bad kids doing bad things and parents being good parents who are having a hard time, not bad parents doing bad things is like foundational, right? That doesn't define you. The first step of repair is actually repairing with yourself. And I think that's actually not really talked about and not understood. And that's why parents don't repair with their kids because they're in such a shame spiral. And until you can find, it sounds cheesy, but like until you can find your own goodness under your latest bad behavior, you cannot go to your child from a place of generosity and connection. And I know for me, it looks like sitting in the bathroom or something and putting my hand on my heart and saying, Becky, like that moment didn't find me. I didn't mess up my kids forever. Good parents do things they're not proud of. And like, I can feel a little something shift in my body. And then I like, kind of know I'm ready to go to my kid.
0: It's because beautiful, by the way. That's... I
1: think it's like, it's often the skip step, yeah. because then if you think about it, the feelings of the repair, the, the feelings of what you did are so overwhelming to a parent, so shameful yeah. that you can't go to your kid to talk about it because talking about it would be kind of reliving and relooking at that moment that you're trying to avoid. So you have to not avoid it and repair with yourself. Mm-hmm. Then why do we repair with our kids? Because I, I hear a lot from parents, but like the next day, like, 10 minutes later, I could see fine. Like, they didn't bring it up. Like, why am I going to bring something up, right? Well, our, as you know, right, our body doesn't lie, right? Our body registers everything. Thank goodness we want it to. So I always think there's just like a choice. Either we leave our kid alone with that experience that felt scary and disconnected in their body. And it just floats, And like, it's just the ending of a chapter. Like, that's that's what they're left with. Or we revisit it and I kind of feel like you like then reopen the chapter of the book. You like, okay, we're gonna go back. And I could probably think about this, like you actually get to write a different ending because you can actually add all the elements that were missing in the first place. Mm. You add the elements that actually help regulation and safety. So you can add compassion, you could add
0: curiosity, you can add connections. So vulnerability. Vulnerability,
1: all of it. And When kids are left alone with feelings in their body that feel really scary and overwhelming, they have truly two options, two options only. One is self-doubt. That couldn't have been as big of a deal as I thought it was because if it was, someone would have talked to me about it, right? If you wonder why so many adults in life are like, am I feeling this right? Would my friend feel like this? Am I overreacting? It's just the legacy of self-doubt or self-blame. I'm such a bad kid. I made this happen. I made my mom yell. Mm -hmm. And self-blame actually feels very safe to a kid because then at least they think there's something they can control in their environment because they have to preserve the goodness in their environment to feel safe. And if we think about why so many adults have a legacy of like whenever something hard happens, they go into a self-blame spiral. Again, it's that learned reaction. Mm -hmm. So if we don't want to wire our kids for self-blame and self-doubt, repair takes care of that. What do we say? Some version of taking accountability. I always think It's good to explicitly tell our kids it's not their fault. I do that for a million things. Like, you know, you're getting a new babysitter. It seems like why it's not your fault. Just because self-blame is like the quickest (laughs) default for a kid. Hey, I yelled at you earlier. To me, again, self-confidence building is just saying like, yes, that really did happen. You know, like that, that, that happened. And just like we talk about you having feelings that sometimes come out and behaviors you're not proud of. Like that's what happened for me. And it's never your fault when I yell. And I didn't mean those things I said. And I'm sure because I said them, they felt bad. And if I really feel like in a good place, I might. I'm like, And I'm open to hearing about that was like, and even if you're kid, I know most parents, like you think my kid's going to share? No, I could too. They'd be like, can I have a snack now? You know, fine. But it still matters. Like it gets mm-hmm. in there. It really is a permission that gets in there. And now in their body, you even think about that file, or I always think about it as a circuit, like in a marble run. So now at the marble run, which ended with, you know, fear and disconnection and yelling and, and a threat. Now we've carved out more. And in that part is reconnection mm. and the safety again, and is compassion and is the removal of self-blame. Like that is mm. so powerful. Mm. Now we can do repair for bigger things too. Cause I always think like us adults, like if any of our parents called us today, today, I'm just like, look, I don't even know the specifics, but there were a bunch of things in the way I parented you that I like truly wish I did differently. And I'm sure either, I'm sure that felt scary. I'm sure that felt overwhelming. I'm sure it felt at times there wasn't enough space for you. And like, I know I can't take that away, but I want you to know that I'm thinking about it. And if you ever want to talk to me about it, like I'm going to do my best to listen and not be defensive. Like that would massively impact adults. I yeah. So like it would massively impact our teenagers. I remember I said to my oldest, i like, I used to give him like timeouts when I was learning this stuff. And beyond yeah. that, like other things, I was like, I'm sure that felt really bad to you. And I just want to let you know, I wish I didn't do that. Like still really matters.
0: So basically it's never too late to make the repair.
1: It is never too late. It's never too late to make the repair. It's never too late to make a change you want to make. Yeah, it's our body. It's true that we wire early, but it's equally true that our body's always open to rewiring.
0: And it's adaptive, right? I mean, okay. Well, your book is brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm so honored that I got this time with you. You're just so incredible. Well,
1: this was awesome. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Dr. Becky Kennedy. Her book, Good Inside, is an indispensable resource for parents. You can also find more information on goodinside.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.